Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Don't forget you can hear this show and all five of my shows on Westwood One early and ad-free over at adfreeshows.com. You also get incredible bonus content like unbelievably Tony Schiavone and I watching Tiger King. We did a hashtag ask Tony anything. And later this month, we'll review WrestleMania 36, the more controversial matches. Eric Bischoff talks about why he got fired from WWE most recently. And he hooks up with a professor to break down the psychology behind the Firefly Funhouse match, the more recent Money in the Bank match, and of course, the Boneyard match from WrestleMania with The Undertaker. But you also see a side of Eric you don't see on the main feed when he talks about his real life relationship with Masa Saito when we revisit AWA Super Clash 4. We catch up with Jim Ross and he tells everybody what he thinks about the new rash of WWE releases and he breaks down what really happened on the plane ride from hell. And how about this? You can even watch an old episode of Mid-South Wrestling between the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express with JR giving you some extra behind-the-scenes content. Our main man, Bruce Pritchard, he's going to talk about WrestleMania 8 and so much more. Find all the bonus content plus all the old StarCast stage shows from StarCast 1, 2, 3, and 4, and a ton of other bonus content from the archives, all available now at adfreeshows.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am just, I, I feel so good, and I'm doing so well, I actually feel guilty about it. <laughs> Well, we're having a lot of fun. We're broadcasting to you this morning from uh, our respective homes. We are safe and happy and healthy, and we hope you are the same. And we hope you're digging what we're doing here on 83 Weeks. Uh, Last week was a really fun show. We talked a little more TNA, but today we're doing a hashtag Ask Eric Anything. But next week, talk about a change of pace. We're going to talk about AEW's Double or Nothing 2019, their very first show ever. Stay tuned next week. That's what's coming your way. Uh, and, uh, at some point this month, we're going to sit down and watch Eric Bischoff team with Matt Hardy to wrestle the young bucks. Yes. It happened. And what, like uh, nine years ago in TNA. So we'll talk about that over at adfreeshows.com. You could get all these shows early and ad free. If you were joining us on adfreeshows.com and last week, uh, on the heels of one of the more controversial money in the bank pay-per-views ever. You, uh, you did a whole breakdown of the match and that's available now at adfreeshows.com. Uh, Eric, give everybody your brief synopsis of, of what they might see if they sign up over at adfreeshows.com and, and, and get your take on money in the bank. Well, for those, you know, who are following us on adfreeshows.com know that Tom Deshaines, he's a, he's an acclaimed author. He wrote a book on Shakespeare's prophylactic characters. Um, I had to Google it. Uh, but he's a really, really bright guy. He studied literature, um, Harvard graduate. Uh, he's a filmmaker. It, it, he, he is the most um, interesting person I've ever talked to 
about storylines and story in general and how it applies to professional wrestling. And, and oh, oh, by the way, Tom's a lifelong wrestling fan who credits his love for professional wrestling uh, as the, the, the inspiration for him to get into storytelling and ultimately graduate from Harvard and study literature and, and that type of thing. So it's, he's a fast and he's a great communicator and it's fascinating, fascinating to talk to Tom, but you know, both Tom were really, Tom and I were really excited going into, to money in the bank because both of us love the Boneyard match, which we covered on adfreeshows.com, the Firefly Funhouse from WrestleMania, which we covered on adfreeshows.com. And we break these presentations, matches, whatever you prefer to call them. We break them down in, in terms of their acts and how possibly they relate to classic stories and classic formulas in storytelling. And I think it's the most uh, interesting kind of deep dive into the, the storytelling psychology. Psychology, that is a word that everybody uses. And it, it means different things to different people. And it has different applications to, to different situations within, you know, storytelling and wrestling and presentation. But you know, we were both so excited because of the success of, of WrestleMania's, you know, cinematic presentation. And this, you know, Money in the Bank was, uh, well, let me put it this way. In, in the first couple of breakdowns we've done, we're referring back to, you know, classic literature, you know, that we'd all recognize from studying such in college. This one we compared to, like, the movie Hangover <laughs> or or animal house. It was more, you know, slapstick comedy than it was an effort to make us believe that everybody was actually competing for something valuable. But we, we break it down and talk about what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, it's an interesting, listen, if you're a student of professional wrestling, if you're just a fan, if, if you're an aspiring producer, wrestler, whatever the case may be, you know, it's just a different way of looking at it. And we've got a huge, we, we've got an outline of some of the things Tom and I do of what we want to do in terms of breaking down story and talking about story, talking about the history of story in professional wrestling that's going to be available on adfreeshows.com uh, in the future. So I look forward to more of those, but check it out and we'll give you our honest opinion about it, good and bad. Uh, by the way, has there been any updates on Ray Mysterio or Alistair Black? <laughs> I got to tell you, man, I, uh, I think a lot of us were sort of laughing out loud when that happened because it made us all think about Halloween Havoc 1995 when the giant famously tumbled off the top of Kobo and then came back an hour later and became world champ. Of course, that was not the story for Alistair and uh, Ray Mysterio. How happy were you that? You were no longer under the employee of Vince McMahon when that happened because you would have gotten eaten alive. Would you not? Oh, no, that would have been, oh, oh you know, that, that would have been headlines all over the place. You know, Eric Bischoff's influence on, <laughs> you know, money in the bank, you know, it's going to bury another company and force them into bankruptcy and you know, all the, all the usual, you know, naive juvenile nonsense that gets published. But, um, Look, I, I, you know, I miss WWE. I, I miss the people, you know, there's a lot of things I don't miss about it or, 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 you know, a few things, but they're very important things that I, that I don't miss, but I do miss the, I, I miss the team. I miss, there's a lot of things I miss about it, but I'm 
really glad that I was home, you know, (laughs) (laughs) having a liver sausage sandwich with a little Tabasco, some raw onion and pumpernickel bread. And, you know, I, I was, I enjoyed just being a a spectator and knowing that none of the shit that's going to hit the fan was going to land on me. Well, we're probably going to uh, make some headlines in today's show. It's hashtag ask Eric anything. You guys get an opportunity to have the keys to the show and pick Eric's brain. And Eric, when we uh, made this tweet, I didn't know what kind of, uh, response to expect. We got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of replies. There's no way we'll get to them all. We'll do our best to tackle as many as we can. Eric, are you ready? I am ready. Hold on, hold on. Let me take a sip of coffee here because I know how these things can get. Here we go. And I'm, I'm going to do my best. Hold on one more second. Hold on. <laughs> okay. Coffee's, coffee's ingested. Let's let her fly. Canadian Travis wants to know during the Monday night wars, when you would give the pre-taped raw results away, where would you get those results or who got them for you? Was it someone in attendance? Did you use a dirt sheet? Uh, I'm a little young, but I know the internet wasn't quite what it is today. Yeah, no, the internet wasn't, you know, quite what it is today, unfortunately, uh, at that time, but well, fortunately or unfortunately, take your pick. Uh, where did we get them? I, you know, I, I think it, I think we used like Wade Keller, uh, primarily his, uh, PW torch is probably where we got most of it. Uh, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't subscribe obviously to Meltzer never have, but, um, it was probably, aggregated, if you will, from, uh, a couple different sources and sites of, you know, that had, um, comments from people that were actually at the event. Those, those that's what we were looking for. And the formats had been out and it, it was all covered in the dirt sheets, but I would say primarily the dirt sheets. Let's get yourself in some trouble here. Ben Thatcher's elbow wants to know Linda or Stephanie, who's the better kisser. Well, that's a tough one, you know, um, both of them, both of them were really, um, exciting in different ways. Now, obviously, you know, Stephanie being the younger of the two and, um, let's just say she was built for comfort and, and the idea of, of making out with Stephanie. And of course she resisted at first and, and, you know, all the years of competing with her father and all the horrible things I said about her dad and, you know, the dirty tricks and giving away finishes and get, putting WWF at the time into the point where, you know, they were hauling the water coolers out of the building because we were kicking their ass so bad and they were just crumbling before everybody's eyes. You know, I'm sure Stephanie carried a lot, around a lot of resentment because as a young girl, she had to watch what her father, who she loves dearly, was going through. So I understand why Stephanie wasn't immediately attracted to me on one level. But on another level, it was undeniable. She could not help herself. And if you notice, you go back and watch that, you know, she she struggles for a moment. But, you know, when once, once we embraced and we started making out it was like the magic just took over for her and she had to give in and that that moment of conquest that moment of establishing my ground and 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 actually making out with the boss's daughter right in front of him was just spectacular 
spectacular. It was a great moment. You know, it's like everybody remembers their first kiss. Mine was a, 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 a girl by the name of Maureen Hilly in Detroit back in 1967. I'll never forget. And her parents had a camper trailer out in the backyard and we snuck off and got the keys to the camper trailer and just had a good old time. It was as good as you can have when you're 12. But that moment was right up there with, you know, making out with Maureen Hilly in 1967. The 12 year old me got pretty excited about it. And the whatever, how old, however old I was at the time, probably 53 year old me got a pretty big kick out of making out with Stephanie. But, but I dare say Linda McMahon now I know she's older, right? She's she's older than I am, which is you know getting up there. But man, oh, it's hard to describe. But man, when I when I grabbed her by the arm and she pulled her in tight, and she looked me in the eyes, and there was a level of communication that was happening there that the audience couldn't really see; they couldn't pick up on it. But the energy and the attraction was just it was palpable and and she too is built for comfort so it was it, it was a moment of the two um i i would have to say i would have to say linda because the intimacy of the environment being in her own home kind of just let the raw emotion flow in 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 a much different way than making out with her daughter you know, in, in an arena uh, on a set, there are two different circumstances, but the, yeah, the energy and the passion was palpable with Linda. <laughs> she is a 71 year old woman. Half She's still hot. I can't in her it. own way, in her own way. This is really what we're doing. Shit. Son of a bitch. These are the screams I used to make when I would cut myself shaving before I knew about manscaped.com. Thank you, Manscaped, for turning those loud shrieks into multiple peaks. Listen, here's the deal, guys. We've all cut our bag when we didn't mean to. It's uh, it's just part of the game, man. Well, not anymore. Thanks to manscaped.com, their crack engineering team has spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created. Of course, we're talking about the new and improved lawnmower 3.0 check this out dude this battery lasts 90 minutes you hear me up to 90 minutes you can take a longer shave you can even line it up down there we're talking about an led light which is going to illuminate the grooming area for more precise trimming but check this out a rapid charging dock powered by usb everybody who has held this thing has said the lawnmower 3.0 is a game changer and it will be for you too it's sweeping the business. Everyone in wrestling is using a lawnmower. You've got to use one too. You got to try it for yourself. Get 20% off and free shipping when you use our promo code 83 weeks at manscaped.com. Seriously, check this out. Your balls will thank you. And right now you get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code 83 weeks at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And be sure to use the promo code 83 weeks. Seriously. Uh, your partner, your dick, and your balls will thank you. Check it out, manscaped.com. Michael Eldridge writes, does Eric think Brock Lesnar is or has been worth the money investment WWE has spent on him? I don't think it's is anymore. I think it's was, but what say you? Was Brock Lesnar worth his investment? You know, 
from all from our collective points of view, I'm being serious now. As fans, as people on the outside looking in, that's a subjective. Yeah. First of all, how, how much money has he made? Does anybody know? A lot. Well, a lot. We all know he's made a lot, but how much is a lot? Right. Is is a lot ten million? Is a lot a hundred million? Is a lot two hundred million? What what is a lot? And unless you know that number, then how do you begin to you know, come up with a, a, an objective answer to a subjective question. You can't, you know, and, and, and a, a, you have to know how much money has WWE invested in Brock Lesnar over those years. And the other part of that equation, if you're being honest and not just, you know, a hater or a super fan, regardless of how you feel about Brock, um, if you don't know how much money Brock Lesnar has generated for WWE, which none of us do, right? Then how can you honestly answer that question? In the in the answer to my question is you can't. Then it really breaks down to: Have I enjoyed watching Brock Lesnar? You know, over the years, I think for the most part, the answer is yes. Um, I think there's going to be some diehard, you know, people that like to think they know better than everybody else and they understand the wrestling business because they read Dave Meltzer's nonsense. You, you know, you're always going to have those people out there. You know, that there, there, there's a, a handful of them, a large handful, but there's a handful of them out there. And when I say handful, I mean compared to the broader 25 million people around the world that watch wrestling. Um, but it's it's a subjective question. I myself uh, have always enjoyed the intensity and the believability and the credibility that Brock brings to the table in his matches. They're completely different than what we saw in Money in the Bank. You know, could you see Brock Lesnar in that? Could you see Brock Lesnar? You know, you know, in in the in the at the elevators in this big brawl in a food fight. Um, I, I can't. That was slapstick. It was comedy. It was not to be taken seriously. He would have been miscast completely in that role or in that scene. But on the other hand, when we've seen some of the more serious matches with Brock Lesnar, um, he allows me to believe. He allows me to put my guard down, <clears throat> not feel a little um, silly for being interested in the product in the first place because he is so intense and he is so believable. So for me... Uh, yeah, I, I, have enjoyed watching Brock and I think he's added a tremendous amount of credibility and believability to the product. Um, but in terms of it, do you think he's worth the money? None of us. And I mean, none of us other than, you know, probably the financial office or the financial floor in WWE can really answer that question. Certainly seems like he's done at least for now. Do you think he'll ever come back? Boy, if, if there's anybody that's qualified to say never say never, that would be me. Um, so I, re, I just can't allow myself to think there's a situation where, you know, he's never going to come back. I don't think he wants to. Well, let's, let's start out with the realities of it. He certainly doesn't need to. There you go. He doesn't need to. So then it comes down to want to. And... My experience in life in general, not just in wrestling, but in life in general, if you, I mean, look, we're, we're, we're looking at headlines now and I don't know if they're true or not. It could be just silly nonsense, but Mike Tyson and some other boxer that I can't remember, 
uh, is talking about having a, coming out of retirement and having a bare knuckle fight. Right. Evander Holyfield, you know, just made a statement about being willing to come out of retirement again. And none of these people need to. They want to because they miss the action. They miss the rush. You can't get the high that you get as an athlete, as a performer. Well, why is Mick Jagger and a Rolling Stone still on tour? Well, they're not right now because of Corona, but I, I have, I have four tickets to the Rolling Stones concert in Minneapolis whenever they decide to reschedule. Why are the Rolling Stones still touring? Not because they need the money, because they want to, because they want that rush. And I think to your point or to your question, I, do I think there'll be a point when Brock Lesnar wants to come back? I do, because Brock Lesnar has been an athlete his entire life. He's been a competitor his entire life. His entire life, he's had a goal. He's had a match, uh, an amateur wrestling match. He's had or a wrestling season. He's after wrestling, you know, he he he, he fuck. He was a walk on for the Minnesota Vikings. Come on. He wanted – and he never played football in high school or college. Or if he played, he played very little. Um, and he and he made the team. He, he, he made the Minnesota Vikings team. Here's – I don't know the exact statistics, but I have a friend of mine that lives here in, in uh, Cody by the name of Russ Francis who won a Super Bowl with the San Francisco 49ers. He played for the New England Patriots. And he his he grew up. His, his father was Russ Francis. Um or no, Ed Francis. Russ Francis is my friend. Ed Francis was a promoter in Hawaii back in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And Russ grew up all around wrestling. So we, we, yeah, we whenever we cross paths, which isn't real often, but we, you know, we always talk about it. And, you know, I think one thing is, is true. When you get that bug, when you get that desire to perform, um, it doesn't go away no matter – what your situation is. So I, I wouldn't expect we'll see him back anytime soon because it takes a while for that want to begin to propagate inside of your head and your soul. But I, I would expect we'll see him back. You got to think if he does come back, it's going to be for something pretty big. I mean, when you have that amount of cash, uh, it, it's got to take a special circumstance to motivate you. And I don't know what that would even be. Charlie Thrower writes, can you shed some light on why talent such as Goldberg and Booker T got to keep their WCW music in WWE, but others like NWO, Sting, DDP, even yourself included, weren't able to use their original entrance themes? Because our, our themes weren't original entrance themes. They were, um, Public we domain. used the, uh, Turner. And then eventually AOL Time Warner had a music library of music that they liced, they had a blanket license for so that whenever, you know, somebody needed music for something, whether it be a video or a package of some kind or for, for whatever reason they needed music, they meaning Turner Broadcasting at the time, we would go to, to the appropriate person in Turner who controlled all of the music and we would get a catalog of things that we could sift through and then decide whether we wanted to use or not. And that's where like the NWO theme came from. That was catalog music that just happened to fit, um, the NWO brand and, and story, the way it was being presented. You know, my music, my interest music, white train, for example, was from a movie, a Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, obviously we didn't own that. Uh, Goldberg's music was music that we didn't completely own. 
we licensed it. So once talent would move over to WWE, WWE had their own music library, but they created that music. They didn't license the music that was in their library. They owned the publishing rights, which is very important because you make money off those publishing rights. If you dig down the rabbit hole, and I don't know enough, uh, enough about this to be really specific about how the music licensing business works and publishing business works. So, you know, forgive me for being a little vague here because I don't want to say the wrong thing. But if you dig down the music rabbit hole in the WWE music library or catalog, I think you'll find those publishing rights may end up in the names of some principals within WWE, which means they're getting a royalty for that. That's why they want to control their own music. That's why they spend the money and the time and go through the efforts of publishing their own music, because no matter when that music is used, how it was used anywhere around the world, there, you know, there's a royalty that gets paid to somebody whether it's WWE or individuals within WWE who own those rights. So um, it's a very lucrative business. It's just a very complex one, one that I don't understand enough to, to fully explain. But long story short, if that's possible with me, I'm beginning to think that it's never, ever going to be possible again. Um, long story short, there was more money to be made in owning and publishing your own music as opposed to licensing catalog music from somebody else, WCW, uh, we were kind of in our nascent stages of evolution in terms of production and in, in, in the brand. We hadn't really built uh, a music division that would allow us to produce our own and publish it. Jimmy Hart did a little bit. Jimmy Hart was the exception. Jimmy, Jimmy saw the big picture, you know, before I did. I just, quite frankly, with everything else, quite frankly, I hate when I say that. Clearly, when when I was trying to to get WCW to the point that we were profitable and we could sustain ourselves on Monday nights head to head with Raw, I was focused on so many other things that music was one of those things that it was definitely on my list. I don't want to suggest I didn't think it was important, but of the 25 things that were the most important, music was in the middle of that, and I just we just never got around to really developing our music library the way we should have. Let's talk about, uh, the end Sean Wolford wants to know, did Lenita Erickson help prevent fusion from reaching a TV deal prior to Vince stepping in and buying WCW? You know, I didn't know anything about Lenita Erickson, um, during that period of time. In fact, I didn't really, she didn't show up on my mental radar until I read uh, guy Evans book about nitro and th the story about her involvement. I think there was some. Um, there was a relationship, we'll leave it at that, between Lenita and somebody in Turner Broadcasting. <laughs> and she, and she, and she was able to kind of weave her way in for a cup of coffee and kind of present herself as having connections in Hollywood. And of course, you know, the only connection she really had was sucking Gene Simmons dick, um, and, and, her, you know, she was kind of Gene's side piece, I guess, for a while. Uh, it came out much later. Uh, Gene's wife, Shannon Tweed, actually tweeted some rather disparaging things about Lenita. But I, you know, I don't, I don't really know. I find it difficult to believe that, you know, other than maybe some <clears throat> well-timed pillow talk that may have confused the situation. I don't think she had enough influence to really stop anything, but I, who knows? I wasn't there. So I, I don't know. 
the exact comment on Shannon Tweed's Facebook years ago was, so I blocked this chick that used to blow my husband back before he was my husband, but like a rash, she keeps coming back, trying to call him. Lanita Erickson, you were blocked in always in forms blocked. Now stop trying. It's over. Move along. We're not getting divorced anytime soon. And if we do, you'll be the last to know. Trust me on that last part. You are way down the queue. So, <laughs> well, there you go. Pretty, uh, pretty pointed comments. All right, let's run a timeout right now and tell everybody about our friends over at cupofjoes.com. Cupofjoes.com is home to over 50 brands of cigars, including favorites like Monte Cristo, Acid, Java, Davidoff, Rocky Patel, Kristoff, and more. Whether you're looking to try a new cigar in singles or get a whole box, they've got you covered with both great prices and excellent customer service. Check out the site. It's cupojoes.com forward slash podcast. And you're going to get a special deal just because you listen to my show here, or you can drop an email to info at cupofjoes.com to reach one of our awesome cigar specialists. The cigars are carefully stored in our beautiful walk-in humidor to ensure your cigars come fresh and humidified. Cupofjoes.com forward slash podcast also has lighters, cutters, and all the other cigar accessories that are available that you could ever need. Check it out. We appreciate cupofjoes.com sponsoring the show and hope that you get a special hookup at cupofjoes.com forward slash podcast. Lenny Bakken, great friend of the show, has a, a very interesting question you and I have never talked about. He says, did Eric attend Vern Gagne's funeral? If so, what did he make of Bob Backlund's outburst during the service? It was widely criticized online. Yeah, I saw that question. It came up on my feed as well, and I was hoping you'd pick it. Uh, no, Lenny, I, I didn't go to the funeral, and I, I was really torn about that one. I, I kind of made it a point after what happened at Rick Rude's funeral. Um, I, I made a promise to myself that I was just not going to attend any more wrestling funerals. And I know that sounds um, harsh, and, and maybe I, I should rethink that, I guess, but um, emotions are so raw at, at funerals. I mean, people are in a heightened state of, of emotion in, in many cases, not in all, but in many, and just the nature of the wrestling business and the history around it. Um, when those raw feelings, you know, at, at something like a funeral kind of bubble up to the surface it, it can get uncomfortable and i asked myself i had a, I really i had a conversation with mrs b about it and i was debating back and forth whether i should go or not because i i really loved Vern and, and had still have a tremendous amount of respect for Vern, and 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 the and what he did for me and what he provided to me as an opportunity that i was able to build on throughout the rest of my life and my career and i'm i'm a very loyal person you know, I, I, I'm extremely loyal and I thought about it. And then, you know, the relationship between Greg and I is, it's weird at best. You know, Greg will still call me once or twice a year and, Hey, I've got this idea for a television show. Would you help me with this? You know, he's pitched me, I don't know, five or six different ideas over the last couple of years, you know, and at the same time, he'll turn around and bury me <clears throat> whenever, you know, somebody will give him 150 bucks to do a shoot interview. Because he, you know, Greg thinks that's what people want to hear or whatever. Maybe Greg in his own delusional way of thinking believes some of the things that he says. So it's just like this weird relationship. So because of that, you know, uh, I just decided, no, 
what, what does it mean when, I, when someone, for me, this is my take on life. I don't think anybody else thinks this way or expect them to, but <clears throat> to me, it's all about paying respect. It's, it's not to show up and, you know, be included and see your name in the list of people that showed up and that kind of thing. So I just decided, you know, it's really, I know how I feel about Vern. I know how much respect I have for Vern. Um, I don't feel it's necessary for me to advertise it or promote it or show up at a funeral to prove it. Um, if, if there's a risk that me showing up will somehow upset the family in any way, whether they should be or shouldn't be. So I, I chose not to go. As far as the Backlund thing, it's just absurd. You know, I, 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 I don't understand it. I don't understand what motivates somebody to react that way. Um, I, I heard about it. I read about it. I talked to people who were there who saw it. So I have a pretty good sense of what really happened. And it's just so inappropriate in another place. And, I, and that's a perfect example of what I mean. You know, I, 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 who wants to be a part of that kind of a carnival atmosphere at a funeral? Right. Not me. I don't want to be anywhere near it. So I'm, I didn't go for my own personal reasons. And I think I was probably right in retrospect, given what happened. <clears throat> but I don't think wrestling and its history and the relationships, ups and downs and anything like that, and everything like that, sometimes they don't really have a place in a funeral. So I, I elected not to go. Let me just say, I fucking hate Greg Gagne just for the way he talks about you on shoot interviews. And one of the uh, things we're going to do on the show one day is play some of his comments and just let you just rip it to shreds because, and I can appreciate what you're saying that you think he's just trying to be entertaining, but I've seen him do this with not just you, but some others. And it's like, man, we got to call this motherfucker out on his shit. Eventually this, I mean, enough is enough. That and would be actually a fun show to do. If we could lift his comments play it so, we, so we hear what, and then react and then here's another comment and react. I think that would be really interesting. And it would shed a lot of light on, you know, Greg and I, you know, to this, you know, we, I, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week. I don't, I, I don't hate anybody. I really don't. I don't allow myself to get that invested in any kind of an emotion that doesn't serve a positive purpose. Right. You know, I just, it's energy and it, it fucks up my way of thinking and I end up getting myself in a bad mood. Cause I'm capable. Believe me, I'm capable. Most of my life I've, you know, I've constantly been in this, you know, internal struggle, you know, with, with the way I react to people, good and bad. And I finally got to the stage in my life where, you know, Mrs. B has helped me figure this out. And I think just getting older and smarter and wiser and more experienced helps as well. But it's like all that energy that I spent being angry or resisting or, you know, fighting back is like, fuck, that's a lot of energy. I could have been thinking about something else. I could have been thinking about a project. I could have been thinking about, you know, doing anything else that would be far more positive than that motherfucker. I can't wait to get back to him. Wait till I do an interview. I'm going to fire back. This is such a waste of good energy that I don't think about it. But when I hear those comments from Greg and, you know, I just, part of me feels really, I feel bad for Greg. You know, he, he, he grew up thinking he was going to follow in his father's footsteps. And I know he loved his father and admired him. And, and, you know, Greg was for the most part, you know, I don't want to say a failure, but he, he, and it's not that you have to be always be successful. I've, I've not always been successful. I've failed at plenty of stuff. I've succeeded at plenty of stuff. It's that's just life. 
You know, if, if very few people go out and play and win who haven't failed several times along the way, I had no problem with people who are unsuccessful and but keep trying. But Greg is a guy that kept trying and never made it to first base, and I think that resentment um, that he carries around manifests in the way he talks about people and situations, and and he is somewhat del- not somewhat he's pretty fucking delusional <laughs> when, it, when it comes to how he sees things and how he remembers things. He's, he's one of the more delusional people out there who does the, why anybody pays him to do a shoot interview? I don't know, but maybe just uh, because he'll shit on you. Who knows? Uh, yeah. Well, Hey, there's money in that, right? Uh, Mike Whitaker writes, do you think if Cena turned heel, it would be like Hogan in 96? I, 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 I don't, no, now, I mean, no. now today, no, it's gone too far, you know, and, and, and scene is, you know, I think, will we see scene in the ring again? I'm sure we will. Yeah. For the same reasons that we talked about with, with Brock. And, and I think those that drive that desire to get back out in front of that car, there is nothing like that, by the way, I don't want to keep harking on this, but I mean, I've, I've never been a wrestler, right? I mean, I've, I've been a peripheral character. But I have been able to be in that ring and I have been involved in enough actual, you know, matches, big ones with large crowds. And, and certainly as, you know, the, the head of the NWO or even just as an announcer, you get, man, there's just nothing like being in the center of the stage, oftentimes by yourself, at least for a portion of, of a scene. And you've got. 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people that are focused on you and they're reacting emotionally to what you're doing and what you're saying. That is a, that is the most powerful drug out there for people who love to perform. And there is no way to replace it. John Cena is doing, you know, he's got a great movie career. It's getting better all the time. I see him in commercials all the time. His, his life as a professional is probably more fulfilling now in many ways than it, it ever was able to be in inside of WWE, but not in all ways. And there are some things that you can get. There's a, there's a certain cut of cocaine, you know, psychological, emotional, that you can get by being out there in front of a live crowd that you can't get anywhere else. You just can't get that buzz. It just isn't there. So I expect to see John back, but I don't think at this stage in his life, if he were to turn heel, the audience would buy it. Would they have bought it, bought into it five or eight years ago? Absolutely. And John could have pulled it off. But now I, I, I think that that train's left the station. Uh, Jeffrey wants to know what's the status of the Netflix Hulk Hogan biopic. Oh. Uh. You know, I don't really drink much anymore. I've cut cut way, 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 way back. And I'm glad that we're not doing this podcast in the evening after I've had a couple cocktails because I'd probably say something that I would regret the next day. So suffice to say, one of the reasons I'm doing so well and feel so great is because things are really, really going well. Great. all aspects of my life. And I'll just have to leave it there because it's really, and here's, here's not to be too cute, but you know, when you 
when you're working with a company like Netflix, um, they like to be in control of the marketing and the publicity and, you know, what is said in the public and when it's said in public. So for me to, to talk about it at all would be inappropriate. But I think if you've been paying any kind of attention, you may have seen some recent clips in the news about comments that Chris Hemsworth has made, um, doing press interviews and things like that. So I'll, I'll just refer you to the internet and Google, Google it, and you'll probably get as much of an update as I would be able to give you. This is an interesting story, uh, from Chris. He wants to know, do you believe WCW should have eventually pulled the plug on airing nitro on Monday night against raw? And if so, when do you believe this change should have been made? Now, obviously we know the success that you guys had going in Eric with 95, and then you're off to the races in 96 and seven, and, uh, it becomes more of a competition in 98, but by the time 99 and certainly 2000 and 2001 roll around, maybe there was an argument made that we should maybe look at another night. Did you guys ever consider that? And in hindsight, do you think you should have no and no. You know, that the night wasn't the problem, the quality of the product, the commitment from the company, um, that was the problem. And you know, it, it's funny. I, I am, especially now, you know, after reading Guy Evans book again, and because I learned a lot, you know, there was Guy Evans did such a thorough job in doing his research. I think he conducted over 125 interviews with, with people, with executives that were a part. And I'm talking about executives that I didn't even have access to really, um, that were a part of the decision-making process and what happened to, to WCW and Nitro. I am relatively certain that the decision, whether it was announced explicitly and internally or not, everybody knew that wrestling was not going to be a part of the network probably as early as early 99. When I say everybody, I mean at the executive level. Knowing now and reading again and learning more about what was really going on behind the scenes, as Ted Turner was losing control of, of the company uh, across the board, not just as it related to wrestling, uh, T- Ted Turner was being neutralized in his own company because of the deal that he entered into uh, with AOL and Time Warner. Um, and the executives around Ted knew that he was no longer, because Ted was the only guy to prop WCW up. He was the only person in, the, in Turner Broadcasting that wanted WCW in the first place, going back to when, when he bought you know Crockett Promotions out of bankruptcy. Um, and, and the launch of WCW, nobody within the Turner organization on the executive level wanted WCW to exist except for Ted and those same executives. Once Ted was becoming neutralized and could no longer, you know, save WCW or fight for it, recognized that this was their opportunity to get WCW, uh, off, off TNT and TBS and, you know, when you hear about, I'm going to step into the weeds for a moment. When you hear about, you know, WCW lost $67 million in their last year. Guess what? I worked there for quite a while. And there was a lot of accounting that while it would have been considered general accounting principles, I guess, or gap, or, you know, there's a set of guidelines that a public company has to live within. Uh, from a financial reporting point of view. And I'm not suggesting that this wasn't the case, but even within the parameters of that 
you know, framework of accounting principles, there's a lot of creative stuff you could do. And I saw it. I participated in some of it. You know, there, I'll give you an example. There were time, and I can't remember specifically the year, but, you know, we would get towards, let's just say it was 96 when things were looking really good. There was, there was a period in time, let's call it mid-96 or towards, in third quarter of 96, where we would put on a pay-per-view, and based on an initial buy rate, we could, with, with credibility and without being too funky or creative, we could decide whether we wanted to include the projection of that revenue in our 96 income or whether we wanted to wait until the final numbers really came in so that we could be absolutely sure, but that wouldn't be till 97. Now, why would we do that? Well, we would do that. I would have done it because if I knew in 96, I was already meeting and exceeding my EBITDA, you know, my goals, my financial goals for the company by a substantial amount. Let's load up next year. I'll, I'll front end load next year. So I'm ahead of the game. Now, had 96 been uglier and we would have been within you know, a couple million dollars of hitting whatever our, our goal was, uh, our, our budgetary goal that was set forth the previous year. If we were coming up short, I could have just as easily justified. Yeah. A, a, you know, accounting for that income in 96. So th there was a lot of latitude in how money was moved around, projected, accounted for, and things like that. There was also this really interesting little device called intercompany allocations. Well, in a company like, well, any big company, I'm not going to name names, any big company, there's a lot of intercompany allocations. And Accounting for them is mm, subjective sure. <laughs> in many respects. And I'm, I'm convinced after all these years, and again, reading more and learning more like I did about what was really going on behind the scenes while I was in, you know, in 99, while I was still a part of WCW, and especially thereafter, I'm convinced that everybody knew WCW was going to go away one way or the other. And it was a great opportunity for a lot of, intercompany allocations to be charged against WCW because everybody knew it was going to go away. And those other divisions within the company were able to shed some debt or shed some expenses and make it, make themselves look a little better in the process because they're going to put the load of losses over here. Why? Because it's going away anyway. Who cares? So I, th that number that's been published and I'm not suggesting that the number wasn't real because it was published by Turner but that number doesn't really reflect the true performance or lack thereof what it really reflects is I believe at least this is just my opinion I don't have any facts to back this up but my my gut instinct based on all the anecdotal evidence and, and, and a lot of other evidence is that everybody knew it was leaving it's like you know you, you know you're gonna sell your house you've already closed on your house you know, the house has already been inspected and the, you know, the plumbing all of a sudden goes bad. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to dump a lot of money into it or you're going to just say, ah, let's just get rid of it and let's not put any more money into the house. In fact, if we need to show some losses, you know, from a tax point of view, let's come up with all the losses we can possibly figure out and dump them into the house and let somebody else deal with it. 
that's kind of that's a bad analogy from a financial point of view but in a sense that's in my opinion of what really went down how the fuck did we get into this conversation who started this you know it's uh it's like a lot of our podcasts i'm not sure i just know that you always finish it uh jonathan wants to know <laughs> that's a good one have you been watching dark side of the ring uh, and is there any story you would like to see them cover if they do a season three I have not, and I'm, I'm pissed off at myself for not watching it because, you know, I, I know Evan, I know the producers, I'm a big fan of their work. They do quality stuff. I just haven't had the time to sit down and watch it. I know that's hard to believe because even I have a hard time believing it, but, but I look, you know, I, I'm up at five o'clock every morning. I start pounding coffee usually about 5.15 and my day for the most part is pretty full and, and I'm trying to get my workouts in and all the other stuff. And then by the time evening rolls around, you know, because I, I, I get up so early, my my alarm usually goes up off about 4.30 or quarter to 5. I get up so early. But by 9 o'clock at night, I'm cashing in my chips. And on weekends, I pr- pretty much stay busy with, you know, my family. So um, I just haven't had the chance to watch it. But I'll, I'll sit down and binge it. You know, I will. It's good stuff. Can't recommend it enough. This past week it was road warriors and, uh, tomorrow night it's Owen Hart. It's the finale. Uh, I've had a chance to see Owen Hart, uh, the episode in advance and whew, it is, uh, the most emotional of the season for sure. It's, uh, it's been a phenomenal series. I hope they keep going for season three. And I sent Evan like a wish list of, I don't know, probably two dozen. Hey, what about this? What about that? And I think it's the highest rated series in the history of vice. So I feel like they'll have options and, uh, we'll see what happens from here. Yeah. I, you know, I only hope cause I do know Evan and I've worked with him and I, I've chatted with him a few times. He's a cool dude. You know, they've <laughs> kind of like the, the boneyard match and money in the, or the, uh, the boneyard match and the firefly Funhouse from WrestleMania. They've set the bar so high yeah. with some of their stories but now that you're through some of the bigger stories and the more controversial stories and those stories that all of us are aware of because they've been part of our, you know, pop culture kind of psyche for the last 20 years or more in some cases. Now that we're through all those, what are we going to be digging into? And certainly there's enough to dig into in the world of professional wrestling. But I just hope that the quality of the content and the, the impact of the stories are there because they're, they're checking a lot of boxes in that series. Man, you think I love talking old wrestling? Well, the only thing I love more than that is helping people save money. But now, thanks to SaveWithConrad.com and this podcast, I can help my fellow wrestling fans save some cash, and we get to talk old wrestling along the way. Just ask Mr. Myers. He just left us a five-star review right there in Cincinnati, Ohio. Well, he heard us talking about it here on the show, gave us a shot over at SaveWithConrad.com, then he gave us this five-star review. Everything went well and was done ahead of schedule to make an easy purchase. Well, my man, it sounds like congratulations are in order. Congratulations on your new house. Thanks for listening to the podcast and thanks for checking out SaveWithConrad.com. Let's keep the good news going over to Wisconsin where Mr. Hansen writes, I couldn't have asked for a better experience than the one we had working with Jimmy. He made what could have been a stressful process incredibly easy. He answered all of our questions immediately and he got us a fantastic deal. I cannot recommend refinancing through First Family Mortgage enough. Save with Conrad to the rescue, sounds like, boys and girls. Another five-star review. Thank you very much for that, Tim. We also want to keep this good news train going. 
How about Utica, Mississippi friend of the show. Super Dave writes Conrad went out of his way to save me money. Congratulations, Super Dave. I saw you write on Twitter that you're going to save more than a hundred thousand dollars. Thanks to save with Conrad.com. Can't thank you enough for your faith and confidence. What about up in DeSoto, Missouri? Ellen would write everyone involved in the transaction from start to finish was very helpful. Every question I had was answered five stars. And when it came to her likelihood of referring us in the future on a scale of one to 10, she gave us a 10. Uh, and so did, uh, Mr. Christopher over in Missouri. He was writing, we were able to knock seven years off of our loan. Jimmy made everything easy. Five stars. Man, there's good news coast to coast at SaveWithConrad.com. And there can be great news for you right now if you go get a quick quote. You see, you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And whether you're stuck in an apartment and feel like you're a part of that lease life forever, do what some of our listeners are doing. And make a decision to get out of that apartment today. Don't believe what you're seeing on TV. You don't have to put 20% down and have an 800 credit score. We're routinely helping our podcast listeners get out of their apartments and into new homes. And they're doing it with little to no money out of pocket. And oh, by the way, all the way down to credit scores in the 500s. But here is some perhaps even better news. If you're a homeowner right now, what about a little summer vacation from house payments? You won't have to make your June or your July payment. You're done until August 1st. And come August 1st, you're going to have a better mortgage. We're going to show you how to take advantage of these once in a lifetime rates and use it to almost hit the reset button on your financial outlook. We want to help you get rid of all your credit card debt just like that. You know, the interest is outrageous. It's eating you alive. Let's get a fresh start. Let's knock it out. Show you how to skip a couple of house payments. Maybe take the family on a vacation, but come August, man, we're going to get serious about getting out of debt. We're going to cut years off of your loan. We have routinely helped our listeners say five, six, seven, 800 bucks a month, but in the process, we also show them how to pay their house off faster. You heard super Dave, even saving more than a hundred thousand dollars. Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And man, if I can't help you save some money, I won't waste your time. Seriously, check it out. Savewithconrad.com. The reviews are in and five stars, baby. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and I should mention there's more than one way to get a hold of us. You can even talk to a live person. Just click the live chat button in the bottom right-hand corner at savewithconrad.com. Or if you're old school like me, man, just give us a call and we'll even pick up the tab. It's toll-free at 888-425-0105 or shoot me an email it's conrad at savewithconrad.com but if you do send me an email be sure to include your name especially if you have a gimmick email and your phone number and uh, i'll hit you up man let's save some money let's save with conrad.com andrew jordan writes in do you have a special piece of memorabilia and it doesn't have to be wrestling related that you would never give away and if so what is it i really don't you know, I, I have, if you go into my storage unit, there is a blazer that I used to wear when I was doing AWA stuff. Um, and I've, and I've, and I'm going to give it away at some point. I'm, I'm going to put it up for auction for a charity or as some kind of a bonus to possibly of adfreeshows.com subscriber or I'm, I'm going to give it away. I'm not going to sell it and put the money in my pocket. It's not worth that much money, but somebody probably would like to have it. That's into collectibles and into things much more than I am. I don't hold on to anything really. Um, 
So, no, I don't really have anything. Other than that, I've got the jersey that I wore when I promoted the AWA touch football game that drew 10,000 people at the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome. I don't know why I'm particularly fond of that. I guess because I still can't believe to this day I could get 10,000 people to come to a touch football game. But it was like the first real event that I ever promoted. So that has some kind of sentimental value to me, I guess. So I've got that. Um, but you know, if you, if, when you come to my house, eventually I'm going to get you and me get out here to Wyoming. And when you come to my house, you walk around, you, there's not one wrestling picture on, and you know, I've got a 4,500 square foot house, 5,000 square foot house. There's not one picture that is related to wrestling anywhere in my house. So I, I really don't. And I, I, I don't know why I just, well, never, I've never hold on to stuff. Once upon a time, I used to have multiple rooms. Now it's pretty much all in the studio. That's what getting married will do to you. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, <laughs> we got so many questions about playboy. Eric, it's ridiculous. Usually people taking you to task about Stacy Keebler, not being in playboy, but there's another question that wants to know the WWF had a great relationship with playboy. Did playboy ever reach out to WCW about maybe featuring some of their ladies as best you recall? Uh, wasn't Kimberly in Playboy? Yes, she was. But was that there something you... they worked out on their own, or is that something that they went through the office for? Oh, they may have worked it out. You know, I don't really know. I'd have to ask GDP. I don't remember that. I wouldn't have been involved in it. You know, um, that's not something that would have fallen on my plate on a day-to-day -day basis while I was at WCW. I was aware of it, certainly. Um, but I don't think WCW drove that initiative, but I'm sure there was some contact. Do you want to... Uh address the other playboy appearance that has appeared in the questions here. Let's keep it moving. Well, do whatever you want. Well, I, it sort of caught me off guard a year or two ago when, uh, a fan of our podcast said, Hey man, do you think Eric would sign my copy of playboy? And I said, well, he wasn't in it. Why would he? I said, well, Mrs. Bischoff was in it. And I looked at him almost like a dog hearing the Andy Griffith show on TV. I tilted my <laughs> head to the side and I was like, wait a minute, what? And sure enough, it turns out Mrs. B, uh, was featured in playboy. And that was total news to me. And I'll never forget the first time I brought it up to you. You sort of reciprocated the dog whistle, except with a big shit eating grin. Are you the most interesting man in the world? You're married to a woman who was featured in playboy. Well, I, there's been a lot of women that have been featured in playboy. So, um, I don't know. Um, am I lucky? Am I fortunate? Have I been blessed? Of course I have. <laughs> <laughs> Whether that qualifies me as the luckiest or most interesting man in the world, I don't think I'd go that far, but life doesn't suck. No, it's just, uh, it's not something I knew happened and it felt like it flew under a lot of people's radars, but I guess it's catching on because we got the question probably half a dozen times this week. Uh, how did that come to be? How did Mrs. B wind up, uh, on the pages of playboy? Well, again, you have to understand, you know, Mrs. B, she was a model from the time starting at about four or five years old. In fact, her first real modeling gig, she was on the she was a little girl playing with Play-Doh on the cover of Play-Doh cans. You know, Play-Doh used to be this like colored putty that yeah, know, kids used to play with. I don't even know if they still make it. It was probably toxic as fuck. Kids were probably eating it and dying it in an early age or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. But back, you know, in the, in the sixties, 
Play-Doh was a really popular kid's toy item. And Mrs. B at four or five years old was the little kid on the cover of the Play-Doh cans playing with this Play-Doh. And from that point, she went on uh, as a child model and, and throughout her, you know, grade school years, she did a lot of work. And then as she got older in her teens, uh, did more and more fashion work and uh, ended up doing some lingerie stuff for like Target and, you know, catalog type stores, you know, tasteful, you know, but lingerie type stuff. So she's never been bashful, you know, uh, uh, about her body or, or, or appearing in, in things that were um, a little provocative. But uh, there was a point, I don't remember what year it was now. Well, it has been like 2005 or something, I guess, or whatever it was. I don't know the year she did it. Um, Playboy was looking for, you know, it, it, it was, it was when the housewives shows got really hot, right? you know, and Playboy was looking for America's hottest housewives. And I don't know how she saw the ad or became aware of it or heard about the promotion. Maybe it was something that was on TV and she said, ah, what the hell? I'll send in a couple pictures, you know, from, from her portfolio. These were very tasteful pictures and, and see if they call me back and lo and behold, they did. So I think for Lori, it was more of a, you know, they were tasteful shots. Obviously there was, yeah, not to get graphic, but they were very tasteful. Um, and she thought, you know, this, this could be kind of a cool way to end my modeling career by getting featured in Playboy as one of America's hottest housewives. So she did it. And I, I thought it was cool and she was excited about it and proud of it. We went to the, you know, when the magazine came out, you know, Hugh Hefner had a big party in Los Angeles and we got to go to that and, you know, experience that, you know, Playboy mystique lifestyle for a minute. And it, it was a lot of fun, but uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. So you went to the mansion too? No, we didn't go to the mansion. The party was at a hotel over in Santa Monica, right on the ocean. So I have been to the mansion before, not related to this. I've been to the Playboy Mansion a couple times, but the party wasn't at the mansion. The party was actually at a hotel. I hate you more with every passing day. I know, right? I don't blame you. By the way, uh, Play-Doh still is available. I threw it in my Google machine. It popped up on Amazon, and you'll be tickled to know that the first descriptor used to describe Play-Doh non-toxic so you were on something and you said that shit was probably toxic and they uh want to make sure that before you go any further this is the non-toxic play-doh you know what i'll do is i'm i'm sure uh Lori has uh either a couple cans of that play-doh around the house in a storage unit somewhere or a picture of it i'll i'll post it on social media so you know, I, I, I do my best to be as clear and, and truthful and honest about, you know, responding to questions and situations as I can be. But I'm sure there are people out there that are going, ah, I don't really believe that. Well, I'm, I'm going to find that can of Play-Doh of Mrs. B when she was four years old and I'll post it online and maybe, maybe she'll even, maybe we'll make copies and she can sign a couple. Who knows? <laughs> well, I'll tell you the, uh, the thing that keeps popping up. Uh, on your timeline, I'm sure you see it is the old target ad with you guys in it. So I don't know why anybody would doubt that you both had some modeling history when the internet discovered it long ago, man of the nineties writes in, in 2010 TNA, why were the nasty boys hired and subsequently released so quickly thereafter? They seem so out of place in 2010 mainstream wrestling, as it feels as if their best days were long behind them. I gotta tell you, this even flew under my radar, the nasty boys in 2010. Yeah, 
uh, why were they brought in? I guess as a favor, brother. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Rory wants to know, what was the last time you had heard of Herb Abrams? And what are your thoughts on him thinking he could dethrone Vince McMahon? Of course, Abrams is in the, uh, the conversation these days because of the feature they did on him, uh, in dark side of the ring. And this is, uh, one of the more interesting characters in the history of wrestling. Did you ever meet Abrams or, or, or did you just hear stories about him? I mean, this is, uh, one of the more fascinating tales of a guy who thought he could compete with Vince and well, went out in a blaze of glory. Yeah, I was aware I had heard the name Herb Abrams. I had heard of what was it? UWF, That's right. I, I, but it was so, it was such a distant kind of awareness. I knew it was, he was out there and I knew UWF was out there, but I really didn't know anything about him. Uh, didn't, didn't really follow what he was trying to do. Never met him. Uh, it was just some guy who was out there in Vegas trying to promote wrestling was my perception of him at the time. So I, 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 and I haven't seen the episode yet as we discussed, so I'm not going to say anything, um, that I don't have firsthand, you know, familiar familiarity with, but I, I never knew him. I mean, like I said, I, I heard his name. I knew he was out there, but to me, it was like some kind of fly, you know, buzzing around your head and eventually it'd fly away or get swatted. That was my impression of it. Um, but I didn't really pay any attention to it. Here's a fun question that you and I haven't talked about before. Brett wants to know how keen was Mrs. B on wrestling over the years? And was there a storyline or angle that she really enjoyed? You know, we hear about her all the time, but. Was she ever a wrestling fan? And, and did she like anything in particular that you put together? Uh, well, I think the NWO era was, was, and it wasn't just because of the NWO, but it, 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 that whole period of time when we started doing live TV and the crowds were getting bigger and the success was obviously, I'm not talking about financial success. I'm just talking about the, the successful energy that we were creating across the boards. Uh, she probably became more interested and more of a fan of of the energy and the excitement and the enthusiasm that I came home with or, or I left in the morning on my way to the office with. She was probably really excited and and, and interested in that. Storyline-wise, though, she, she would never – when she sat down to watch wrestling, she was sitting down to watch what I was going to do that night. You know, <laughs> so she knew whether to be humiliated and embarrassed and avoid people in public or whether it was okay to go out and socialize. Um, but no, she was never a, a fan fan. And interestingly enough, when I first met Lori, we were, well, I, I, I kind of, we first met, I think in 1981 or 82. And at that point I really wasn't watching wrestling all that much. Um, I'd kind of dropped out of it. And then we, started living together. We moved to Chicago and I didn't watch wrestling at all. We were both there for a year or two and then she got pregnant and she came back to Minneapolis. So did I, I took a job as a sales manager for a company that manufactured agricultural equipment. <laughs> I went from being a model and a bouncer in downtown Chicago to being a salesman of potato harvesting equipment in North Dakota. <laughs> but, um, about 1984 is when I started getting back into watching wrestling again. 
And it, it, it seemed odd to her because from the time she first met me all the way up until the time we moved back to Minnesota from Chicago, wrestling was never something that came up. Right. I didn't watch it while we were in Chicago. I didn't talk about it, none of that. And then when we finally moved back to Minnesota, I got to plug myself back into the AWA again. And we would go through this routine on weekend mornings where we had no money. I mean, we were making zero money. We lived in a farmhouse 65 miles north of Minneapolis out in the country that didn't – the only heat that it had, and I shit you not, was a wood-burning stove down in the basement that I had to keep loaded with firewood throughout the day in the wintertime to keep the house warm. I mean, it was kind of really rural. You know, We did have running water. We did have that, but that's about it. And on Sunday mornings, you know, we would get up and I would, I would go to the supermarket and I'd buy these fake crab legs. You see them that come in rolls. It's not really crab, but they kind of dye them pink on one side and it's white on the other. So it's supposed to look like a crab leg kind of sort of, and, and you know, they were cheap. You know, I could actually afford them. I would, I would get these crab, fake crab rolls and the bottle of, or two of the cheapest champagne I could find, like for four ninety nine a bottle or something like that. And we would make this breakfast, this brunch, and I would turn on professional wrestling. I had this little little television that I put on a TV tray <laughs> in this house that was so sparsely furnished. It's funny. And we would sit there and drink cheap champagne and eat fake crab legs watching AWA. And she, you know, I remember her looking at me at a couple of times and go, what, why, why exactly do you like to watch this? And, and I tell her, I said, because it's the purest form of marketing there is. It's, 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 it's a television show that directly markets to its audience and in a way that no other program does. And as I began to explain to her why I was interested in it, I think she began to understand why I was interested in the business of the wrestling business, probably more than I was interested in the action that we were watching on television. So she she learned eventually to understand it and not look at me like I had three eyes um, whenever I'd turn it on. But no, she was never really a big fan until the money started rolling in. She became a huge fan. Have you heard about the pro wrestling booker game that's available on Apple and Android mobile devices? It's called eighties mania wrestling returns. And if you're looking for an incredibly fun, easy to play general manager style wrestling game for your mobile device, this is the one. The premise is simple. You collect cards for wrestlers, managers, match types, and more. And the better shows you book, the more in-game cash you'll earn to collect more cards. There's all sorts of secret unlockable rewards in the game too. Team up the right wrestlers and you'll unlock their tag team card. Match certain wrestlers against each other and you'll unlock their feud card. And as if that doesn't sound cool enough, the universe of characters is awesome too, considering the game is set in the 80s and 90s, also known as the two greatest decades in the history of pop culture and pro wrestling. 80s Mania Wrestling Returns is free to play and the developers are constantly updating the game with new characters and new features. Just search for 80s Mania Wrestling Returns in the App Store or your Google Play Store. And check this out. Once you've played through the in-game tutorial, head to the settings screen and enter this cheat code, Conrad, to unlock a bunch of wrestler cards and game cash. Wrestling fans, pop culture fans, 80s and 90s, nostalgia fans, check this game out. You will not regret it. 80s Mania Wrestling Returns.
Michael wants to know if you hadn't gotten sent home in 99, do you think the kiss themed pay-per-view new year's evil would have actually happened? No, no, that was again. One of the things that really, uh, I gotta be careful how I say this. It doesn't really bother me to this day. I've kind of dealt with it, but at that time, that was such a big idea. That was a massive idea. And the, I, and for people that don't know it, I'll briefly summarize it. The idea was, and it's one of the reasons why we did the deal with Gene Simmons and Kiss in the first place and why we created the Kiss-like characters, because one, we, including Gene Simmons, believed that there was a, a huge market for a, a, a line of Kiss-themed merchandise, toys, games, videos, dolls, whatever, And Gene at the time probably still is a marketing guru beyond probably most people's understanding of the term. He's so smart and he made so much money, probably still is, that I was willing to bet on that. You know, a a combined wrestling, Kiss wrestling related, you know, WCW, Gene Simmons and Kiss related merchandise and story to go along with it and support it and promote it. So it had longevity. It wasn't just a one-off. And I was so excited about it. It came at a time in 1999. And by the way, we started talking about this early in 99. It wasn't like the idea just popped up in my head in October, November. We had been talking about it and planning on I had worked with the city of Phoenix in Tempe, Arizona, and worked with the people who, who, were, who were staging. Uh, what's, what's the bowl game there? The Fiesta Bowl? Yeah, I think it's a Fiesta Bowl. Working with the promoters and, and everybody involved with the Fiesta Bowl so we could be a part of the Fiesta Bowl celebration in Phoenix. And we would produce the show on the field, the same field that they were playing the Fiesta Bowl on. It would be a part of the entire, you know, kind of week's promotion and package. And, and the idea, very basic idea, was that we were going to open up the show with a kiss set or kiss song. And then immediately go to our first match in the ring. And then out of that ring, we'd go back for another KISS performance. And out of that performance, we'd go back to our next match. And it was going to be an entire back and forth all the way through the night. And because of, and again, if if you weren't, you know, if you were too young or not paying attention or just forgot, when 1999 was going to roll over in 2000, the whole Y2K, not Y2J, Y2K thing was a real thing. People were really concerned about what's going to happen. Are the planes going to fall out of the sky because computers are going to quit working and, you know, air traffic control is going to shut down and the supply chain is going to crash because we've become so dependent on technology that, you know, when the technology crashes because of Y2K, the the entire world's going to come to an end. I thought, fuck, what a great opportunity to promote a pay-per-view based around that. So we were going to, and that was in the psyche of everybody. It was in the news. It was in the paper every day for six months leading up to it. Um, and I thought, wow, what a great opportunity because the pay-per-view was going to be on the on the West Coast, uh, obviously the Fiesta Bowls in, in Tempe, Arizona. So I thought we could time this so that from an East Coast perspective, when the ball is dropping, we were going to have, we we're going to time it or attempt to, we would have had to pre-tape it somehow, but we were going to attempt to have the final three count, whatever the main event was, I don't remember at this point. I don't even know that we got there at this point. But 
the final three count was going to come at the stroke of midnight. That was going to be the end of the pay-per-view. And I, I was so excited about it. We had so much support from, from the city, uh, the promoters, the Fiesta Bowl. Every, we had the logistics figured out. And I, got, I, I was so excited about it. And I came in. Once we finally put all the pieces together, we had approvals from Tempe and all that. We, I finally I presented it you know, inside of WCW. And it was, it was like I wanted people – I don't know. I, it, it, I, it was like I sucked the life out of them when I pitched it. I didn't I wasn't pitching. I was like, this is what we're going to do. And everybody across the board – there was nobody really. You know, David Crockett, I think, probably supported it, but David was a he was a supporter anyway. Um, there may have been a handful of people that were supporting the idea, but collectively, the vast majority of the people were like, "Fuck, you mean we have to work over New Year's Eve? I mean, that's Christmas week, and we're going to have to actually work." You know, and a freelancer. Not only people internally in WCW that would have had to rearrange their schedule to work over a holiday break to a degree. Um, but you know, freelancers and everybody else. And it got so bad that a group of, and again, this is when people were smelling blood in the water. We're realizing that I was on shaky ground. We're realizing that Turner was and WCW was on shaky ground. There was a lot of vulnerability there and everybody knew about it internally. So the first thing they did was go to HR and, and start a campaign to, to complain about it and how unfair it was that they were being asked to work over holiday break and their fear because of the Y2K and the unknown. I, I, I was basically told by people um, much higher up the food chain than me that, you know, don't pursue it. And it was because of that kind of internal fear and loathing and laziness. Joel wants to know Gary, Michael Capetta or David Penzer, David Penzer. I love David Penzer. He's a cool dude. He is a cool guy, but man, I grew up on GMC and I'll never forget when I was a kid, he used to introduce Sid and he would say, um, you know, occasionally Sid would be introduced from West Memphis, Arkansas or something like that. But when GMC would do it. From anywhere he damn well pleases. And as a kid, I was like, that's the fucking coolest thing ever. Yeah, that's not a commentary on whether one was better than the other. It's just no. I'm, I, as time as, you know, when I, when I worked with David, I could, yeah, not that I didn't like him, but uh, I didn't go out of my way to hang out. Let's put it that way. But over the years, especially the last few, you know, when I've run across David, you know, whether it be at StarCast or, you know, any other kind of autograph session or event that we would be at. I just, I, he just, he's a fun guy to talk to and hang out with. And he's a great realtor, by the way, in Tampa. So if you're looking to list your house or sell your house or buy a house, uh, look up David Penzer. He's the man in the area. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, one of the other voices of Nitro, uh, you know, the height of WCW. Didn't he sell Chris Jericho, his new place in Florida? I think he sold his old house for him. Yeah. Sold his old house. Well, yeah. he made a couple bucks then. I'm sure. Uh, just Scott wants to know what was your relationship with Judy Bagwell? I didn't have a relationship with Judy Bagwell. I, I didn't have one. That's the only real answer I can give you. Well, I think a lot of that comes out of the story we've heard about, um, Judy Bagwell and Jim Ross, when buff was with WWE for that cup of coffee. 
Uh, Jesse Bates wants to know, why do you think Buff Bagwell didn't work out in the WWE? And what do you make of his claims that it was all JR's fault? Oh, I don't pay it much heed. You know, why didn't it work? Look, Bagwell is in a, he's kind of a caustic personality. You know, he's, he's not an easy guy to like until you get to know him. You know, and if you, if you can stand him long enough to really get to know him deep down inside, he's a pretty good guy. I mean, deep, deep, pretty deep down inside. But it takes a while to get there. And the, the, the Mark Bagwell that you typically see, especially when he's around a lot of other people, it's just, he just kind of rubs you. It's like, you ever, when you were a kid, take those little square transistor radio batteries and touch them to the end of your tongue out of dare? <laughs> you ever do that? I know what you're talking about. Yeah. That's what Mark Bagwell is like. It's just like, oh. Oh God, it's, it's just, it's uncomfortable. It's not painful, but it's uncomfortable and you tend to avoid it. That's, that's what he's like most of the time until you get to know him. And I think he probably, probably brought a lot of that with him to WWE. And it's not look WWE has got its own unique culture. No shit. And if you go into WWE not being aware or not understanding the magnitude and the significance of that culture, you're probably going to find yourself on the outside looking in no matter who you are. And I'm sure that was the case with, with Mark, you know, to blame Jim Ross, you know, every, whatever people need to think and do and say whatever they need to think and do and say to get through a day to make themselves feel better about themselves and, whatever. And I chalk it a lot of that up to, to that. Marcus brought it upon himself. Jim Ross might've been involved in it. He may have, he may have seen, he, cause he, look, Jim knew, Jim knew Mark, right? I mean, Jim worked with Marcus and WCW. So he, he knew all about Marcus and maybe because of that, Jim kind of, uh, accelerated the departure because he understood what he was working with and what he wasn't working with and knew that Marcus wouldn't be a fit in WWE. That's possible. I don't know. I wasn't there. I've never talked to Jim about it. So I, I would chalk it up to just sour grapes. Angelo wants to know, have you watched the relaunch of the NWA on YouTube? And if so, what do you think of the product? I've dropped in on it. You know, I don't, as I said earlier on in this podcast, I just don't have a lot of time to watch a lot of things, but I have dropped in on it. David Lagana sends me clips from time to time. Nick Aldis, who I stay in contact with and have a lot of respect for, will sometimes send me something and ask my opinion of it. Um, and I like what I see. They've kind of embraced. <clears throat> I've talked about this, I think, before. You know, one of the things I like about what NWA is doing is they're they're not they're not trying to camouflage who they are or where they're shooting. They're embracing it. And, and, and there's just enough of a nostalgic thread in the presentation, nostalgic in, in the sense of the technique, um, that I find it interesting and appealing in a way that I don't find interesting or appealing in some other presentations that I watch. You know, one of the – TNA, for example, you know, 
tried really hard. And by the way, they were very successful at it in many respects, thanks to guys like Kevin Sullivan, not not the wrestler, not the taskmaster Kevin Sullivan, but the producer Kevin Sullivan, two different people. Uh, but Kevin Sullivan was a great producer and a great editor and a good eye. David Sahadi was exceptional at creating packages. David Sahadi used to work for WWF and left. And I think he's still working with Impact to this day, if I'm not mistaken. But a very, very, very creative guy. And between the two of them and Keith Mitchell, who's now working, I believe, at AEW, yep. you know, and everybody involved, um, TNA was able to really, towards the end, not because I was there, but while I was there, they were really doing a good job of, to the best degree possible, camouflaging the fact that they were in a soundstage. And when you camouflage, you're not quite, you know, you're not the WWE, you're not big, you're not really small. You're somewhere kind of in that gray area in between, which is okay. I'm not criticizing that. But um, NWA, rather than finding themselves in that gray area, or worse yet, trying to compete with the WWE when they don't have the resources, um, is embracing who they are. And they're kind of going back to that studio wrestling vibe that you know existed in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And I, for one, kind of dig that. Because it's a little bit of a nod, a wink and a nod to the, to the history of of televised professional wrestling that you don't see anywhere else. Yeah, and you've often said, you know, when it comes to, not just WWE but any product, you can be, especially when you're talking about a competitive nature, uh, more than, less than, or different than. And if you don't have the financial resources to be more than, then you inevitably wind up becoming less than. So. It's better long-term to try to be different than, right? Yeah, and I think they've carved out a great niche for themselves. You know, I, I don't keep track of you know their business and how many downloads they get on YouTube and that kind of stuff. I don't have the interest or the time for it. But um, you know, they're still doing it. And the product that I have seen, the, the, the promos, for example, the interview sets, the confrontations that I have seen that have been sent to me, I really dig. You know, David Lagana is a good producer. Um, He's become a good producer. Um, and some of the packages that I've seen are done really, really well. I don't know uh, Billy Corgan's involvement. He may have his fingerprints all over everything, or he may be allowing others to do their best work. I don't know because I'm not there. But regardless of all that, the the quality of the things that I've seen them produce, I find to be very appealing and because they've embraced who they are and what they are in a way that's a little bit of a wink and a nod to the history of studio wrestling, I, for one, kind of dig it. Yeah, I dig it too. And I, and I hope that uh, on the other side of this, that uh, they have continued success. Chris Mack wants to know, Eric, who do you think had the best wrestling mind of these three? Arn Anderson, Jake the Snake, Scott Hall. I'm going to have to go with Scott Hall, not because I think I'm right, but because I really didn't have... You know, I, I, Arn, I, I didn't really get to work closely enough with Arn on a creative basis, um, to really appreciate his strengths. Clearly there are, they're there. And I wish I would have embraced Arn or, or worked Arn into our system creatively and, you know, 
booking committee or even just one-on-one he and I as a kind of a Sherpa guidesman would have helped me a lot clearly um, because he had a, a thorough understanding that I didn't have when I was putting my toes into creative waters back in 95 and 96. Uh, but I didn't do that. Uh, so since I didn't really, I, I haven't really had the experience working with Arn. Um, I can't really count him in there. Um, who was the other one besides Scott? Uh, Arn, Jake, the snake and Scott Hall. Oh, Jake, I never worked with. So I have no idea what his potential was clearly, you know, talking to DDP and listening to every interview DDP ever does. He always puts over Jake, the snake is the guy. If it wasn't for Jake, the snake and dusty roads, DDP wouldn't exist. I'm just going to say there's been periods of time that I've scorned both of them as a, as a result, but, but, but that was back in, in the early days. Um, so I never worked with Jake either. So by default, I'd have to go with Scott Hall, who I've talked about at length. He's Scott, when his head is clear, when he's when he's into it, when he's interested and motivated, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy. Man, we get this question all the time on some of my other podcasts, and we've always touched on it. Um, but I don't think you and I have ever talked about it on the air. Kevin Brock wants to know, what are your thoughts about this whole never ending rumor of macho man and Stephanie McMahon? Gorgeous. George was the latest one to bring it up again. Is there a chance this rumor will ever die? And what did you think of it? I think absolutely nothing of it. I, I don't, unless somebody brings it up and, and even when they do, it goes in one ear and out the other. It's just silliness. It's so childish. I agree. I can't, I can't understand why anybody is even interested in the rumor. And I'm not criticizing anybody for sending the question. And don't get me wrong. Questions are questions, and I appreciate them all. But on a personal level, I, I, I just don't think I can get low enough to allow myself to even really think about it seriously. I just can't. Yeah, I. I just don't think it's based in reality. It feels like it's something that guys just had fun with once upon a time. And then it became telephone, telegram, telewrestler, and you know, rumors are rumors. Gavin wants to know, I'd like to know Eric's thoughts on ECW's one night stand 2005 as a show. I've heard he had a blast being in the audience and being one of the big heels for the night, but I was curious about his thoughts on the matches, the crowd, the favorite moments and anything else you might remember from the show. This comes up because I can't believe this, Eric, but we're just a couple of weeks away from the 15 year anniversary of that show. And it doesn't feel like 15 years ago. Yeah. Let's I'm going to, I'm not going to go into too much depth here because I think we should, we should do a show on that event. There's sure. enough meat on that bone that, that I think it's worth a show of its own uh, on 83 weeks. But I will say, um, there are several memories I have of my time as a performer in WWE that I cherish and I'm so grateful for. Um, this, you know, the one night stand isn't at the top of the list, but it's definitely on the list. I had an absolute blast, the energy, the intensity, the passion, all of those words, um, were so high. And again, much like the Stone Cold Steve Austin, Eric Bischoff story, or much like when I made when made my debut in WWE as the general manager, and it, that, those things worked. 
not because I was such a great talent or, or I was so over. They worked because there was five, 10, 15 years of backstory that everybody knew or thought they knew, but it was tangible to them. It was there. Um, there was so much backstory built into it that it was the easiest thing in the world to get the crowd excited. And as a performer, especially in that venue, because it was, it was like center stage, you know, bigger than center stage, but not a lot. It was such, everybody was packed in so tight and their armpit to armpit, they're pounded beers and they're fired up. And there was a, that residual kind of ECW mystique, great word for that night was there was a ton of mystique and story and history that everybody related to and was still somewhat fresh in their mind. Uh, and I was a piece of raw meat to that audience. <laughs> they hated my guts, man. They couldn't wait to see me get fucking thrown on the grill and eaten alive. So as a performer, a heel performer, my God, you know, I, I, I that was like, one of the more fun things that I've done in WWE so much so that, uh, I just said, I wasn't going to go too far into detail and here I go. But you know, when the match was laid out much like I did in WWE, when I left as a talent and they sent me the creative, uh, the weekend before the, the weekend before Monday or whatever it was Sunday night, I got the creative or Sunday afternoon and it showed John Cena hitting me with, you know, the, his finish and then John Cena picking me up and throwing me in the garbage truck. And I went, the audience doesn't want it. I got no heat with John Cena. John Cena doesn't hate Eric Bischoff, really. I mean, I guess as a baby face and I'm the heel manager. Yeah, I guess you, know, you could buy that. But if this is indeed going to be my last appearance of WWE, what does the audience really want to see? John Cena hitting me with a finish and throwing me in the garbage truck? Or do they want to see John Cena hit me with a finish and Vince McMahon throwing me in the garbage truck? And I actually had to go to Vince and kind of lay out my my perspective and and got him to rewrite it and that's how we did it and much the same thing kind of happened at the ecw uh pay-per-view when and i don't remember what the original finish was or the scene was between bully and divan and i but there was at some point they came up with a finish and they're going to put me through a table or do something and i've gone through tables before that's no big deal it wasn't that i didn't want to go through a table but it was just and eh, been there done that you know, okay, yeah, the audience will dig it because it's get the tables and they're kind of preconditioned to react to it. So I knew that would work, but I thought, God, wouldn't it be much better if Bully dragged me outside in an alley and threw me to fucking dumpster? That would be kind of cool. And I pitched that to Bully and Devon and Bully looked at me and go, really? You would do that? I said, fuck yeah, I'll do it. That'll work. And well, that's what we did. Unfortunately... <laughs> We didn't sanitize that dumpster. So, yeah, I I, I, I suggested and, and fully volunteered to get thrown into a legit funky dumpster in an alley in Manhattan. Dumbass. Uh. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't come out of there with any typhoid or diseases or tetanus or anything like that. But, yeah, that, but it was fun. It was a blast. But that is how we got coronavirus. So thanks a lot, Eric. Yeah, I started that. Uh, Colby Reed, this will be our last one. Colby Reed wants to know if you could travel back in time until 1995, Eric, anything, what would it be? Wow, great question, Toby. Um, slow down, uh, plan longer term, 
and develop a thicker skin. That would be it. I would think that you would have said, go find Jeff Bezos and give him all of your money for Amazon. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I was trying to, I was trying to keep it to wrestling, but yeah, that too. Well, that's going to do it for this week's hashtag. Ask Eric anything. These are always a blast next week. We're going to talk about something we've never done before. You know, we usually steer away from current stuff, but we're going to talk about it in long form, man. AEW's double or nothing 2019. I can't believe this is really happening. Um, one year ago, they had one of their biggest show, the biggest show they've ever had because it was their first show, but it was an immediate sellout and the demand for this show was huge. Uh, the hype was even bigger. And now we're a year later and well, things look a little different for the wrestling business. No fault of AEWs or WWEs or anything else, but this year's double or nothing is going to have to look a lot different, uh, than last year's did. But I don't think you saw this full show start to finish, right? You just saw spots of the, uh, the Rhodes match, right? Yeah, no, I watched the Rhodes match because of, you know, I, Dustin is, is, is a friend and, and so is Cody. I mean, we don't stay in touch, you know, for a lot of reasons, but, you know, I consider Cody a friend and Dustin certainly a friend. I got a lot of history with Dustin, uh, good history. So, uh, yeah, I did watch that, but I didn't watch the whole event. I didn't want to go to the event because I didn't want to become part of a rumor or story and have my feed blow up and didn't want AEW to have to do with the fallout from it either. So I stayed away from it. So I'm anxious to look at it. I haven't watched the whole show. Well, I'm looking forward to it too, because, uh, I mean, when you look back in history, it's going to be one of the more talked about wrestling shows in history. I mean, everybody always talks about that first nitro and the first Monday night raw and the first WrestleMania. And this is the first AEW show. We're going to talk about it next week. AEW double or nothing. 2019. Now, don't forget, you can listen to all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. And you get lots of bonus episodes, including us breaking down Eric's most recent run in WWE. Uh, you've heard all about the context is King series where they break down the storytelling aspect of the two more controversial matches from WrestleMania 36. And of course the most recent money in the bank match, but maybe my most fun little bonus episode we've done, Eric was when we talked about AWA super clash four, because that wasn't Eric, the businessman that was Eric, the wrestling fan, the upstart, the hopeful, uh, who looked forward to having a, a long wrestling career or hope to. And at the same time, we heard a different side of you where you talked about your real life relationship with my son. It's just been a tremendous amount of fun. Go check them out all these shows. There's tons of bonus content. Eric loves cranking out this content. And there's lots of video stuff there as well. It's adfreeshows.com. And uh, tune in next week. Hit the subscribe button. AEW double or nothing. 2019 coming your way right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. I'm Dave Silver with Save with Conrad. Yeah, what's up, man? I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. Stephen, what made you come to Save with Conrad? To be honest, we were just listening to the podcast. Some, you know, a couple um, financial issues that I wanted to get out of, and you know, some credit card debt, and I had some medical debt, and I basically just 
send an email and next thing you know, I got a call probably an hour later. Was there anything specific that Conrad mentioned on the podcast that kind of triggered you to make that call? Yeah, just consolidating debt. I mean, that was one of the things that I was really looking for was to kind of not have, you know, payments all over the place and, you know, having interest really uh, put a damper on things. What was your favorite part about working with the team? Um, I'd have to say, I, I mean, probably how fast they responded to things. You know, I was refinancing, so, you know, I had some worries about a couple things and, you know, he answered all my questions and just helped me feel, feel more, um, I don't know, more confident about the process, you know. Now, how much money were we able to save you in this whole process? I mean, I look at it at least at least fifty thousand dollars at the very least. If you could, would you recommend this to a friend or a family member? I recommended it to my mom because she she didn't believe that I was actually refinancing and you know was able to save that much money. That's tremendous. That's wonderful to hear. So, what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.